0: Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're going to focus our attention tonight on verses 6 through 9. Moses writes, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk. By the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Father, I pray now that as we turn to your word, to these very words of Moses, that they would be on our hearts tonight. Implant your word upon us and in us. We ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come to the book of Deuteronomy, the Israelites have been wandering in the wilderness for close upon 40 years now. And finally, they are poised to enter into the land of promise. And yet, Moses, their great deliverer, their great prophet, their great leader, is about to go the way of all the earth. He is about to die. And so he will not cross the Jordan River with them. He will not be there with them in the land of Canaan as he has been all these years. He will not be there to continually remind the people to serve the Lord. He will not be there to remind them of God's words. Now, of course, Joshua will Come to lead in his place. But the children of Israel are about to cross the Jordan River where they will spread out into their various tribes and towns. And Joshua won't be able to be in every place reminding the people of God's word either. Joshua won't be there every time to keep them on the straight and narrow. No, the people are going to have to take God's words with them. And they're going to have to remember God's words for themselves so as to live for God when they scatter to all their separate places. And so perhaps, before they cross the river, it would be good for the sons of Israel to hear God's words one more time. Especially since, as Adam Clark has pointed out rightly, I think, since over the course of these four decades, a whole new generation has arisen in Israel. So that many of those who are about to cross the river had not been there when God's laws were first given, nor had they been there to see God's wonders in Egypt or in the early wilderness wanderings. And so before they go into the land of promise, Clark says, they need to be reminded. They need to have God's laws reiterated to them. They need to have God's mighty deeds of old rehearsed in their hearing so that they will remember them well when they settle in to their new homes. And so for all these reasons, in this book of Deuteronomy, what happens is that Moses actually stands up at the end of his days in this world to teach God's people again before he dies, to give them a final series of reminders, to reiterate for them God's mighty deeds in days gone by and God's marvelous commandments given to help his people live well. Before he dies, Moses... Comes to teach the people of God again so that they will be truly ready to live for the Lord in their new land. And really, what Moses does in this book of Deuteronomy is to repeat and to summarize much of what he has already taught his countrymen in days gone by and what he's recorded for them in the first few books of the Bible. Before his breath expires, Moses stands before the people again to give them a second rehearsal of God's law. Indeed, that's what the word Deuteronomy means. Second law. Deutero, second namas law. And that's what we have in this book, by and large. A second statement, really a restatement of the contents of the law of God that's already been written down and given to the people in the prior teachings and books of Moses. We usually call the books of Moses the books of the law, these first five books of the Bible, because they do contain so many laws, so many commandments to be obeyed, but they also, of course, record a good bit of history, too. And in this rehashing of the law that we call Deuteronomy, Moses recounts both for the people of Israel. He recounts the history of God's mighty arm bared on behalf of his children, and he recounts many of the commandments which the Lord has given them to live by. And here in chapter 6, In the middle of these reminders, in the middle of this recapitulation of God's truth, Moses pauses for a brief moment in the midst of all this teaching and recapping to emphasize to the people just how important are these words that he is recounting for them in this book. He doesn't want what he's saying to fall on deaf ears, nor does he wish for the people simply to listen to what he's saying. No, As we heard, Moses is concerned that the people of God actually do something with these words of God's law, which he is laying out before them again. Isn't that what we read in verses 6 through 9? These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, And they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses wants the Israelites to do something with the instruction that he is going over for them again. He wants them to write these words on their own hearts. He wants them to write them, as it were, on the consciousness of their children. He wants them to write them even on their own gates, he says. He doesn't want these great speeches that he's giving at the end of his life to be the last time that these people think about what God has said to them. And nor does any preacher, right? He wants them to hear and to act. These words shall be on your heart. And I just want to urge you tonight to do with God's words today what Moses urged the Israelites to do with them so long ago. Now, of course, these words, in the context of Deuteronomy 6, these words refer directly to the content of Moses' speech that he was giving to them at that very time. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So these words in verse 6 refers most strictly to the contents of the book of Deuteronomy and by extension to the prior books of Moses of which Deuteronomy is a reiteration. But I think it's not a stretch at all to say that the Lord, having added 61 more books to the canon of Holy Scripture, would have us do with all his words what the Israelites were to do with the law of God in the days of Moses. The law of Moses prepares us for Christ. It presents us with forms and shadows which are wonderful, but, but it does not give us Jesus in all his glory like the four Gospels or like the letter to the Romans or the epistle to the Hebrews. And if the Israelites were to treasure these words, these words that give us the shadow and the form in Deuteronomy and Exodus and Leviticus and so on, how much more ought we to treasure the whole treasure chest of God's word, which presents our Savior in full color? So I think these words from Genesis to Revelation shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them, all of God's words, as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates from the beginning to the end. That's what I want to urge you to do tonight with the whole tapestry of God's revelation. And as I said a moment or two ago, I think we can uh, summarize the instructions in these four verses by saying that Moses and the Holy Spirit who inspired him do not merely want us to hear God's words, but to write them in some strategic places, in three strategic places, in fact. So first of all, Write these words on your heart. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Write these words on your own heart. Now, I know that according to the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, God is the one who writes his laws on our hearts, right? So it may sound strange that I would say to you, you must write these words on your own heart. But I think that's the idea behind verse 6. Yes, God must ultimately inscribe his word on your heart, but he uses means in order to do so, right? He doesn't come with a stylus from heaven and put his words on your heart. He uses means, and one of the chief means he uses to write his words on your heart and mine is that we put ourselves under these words such that the lettering begins to be stitched into our breasts. These words shall be on your heart, yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, but under his influence, these words shall be on your heart by your own diligence. And I think the rest of this passage, verses 7, 8, and 9, bears that out. We're to be diligent with these words, to, to teach them, to talk about them, to post them up where we can see them. Let's just think about how does that diligence play out. How do we go about inscribing God's words On our own hearts today. What does it mean? What does Moses mean when he says, These words shall be on your heart? Well, I think he has in mind, at the most basic level, that God's word should be so much a part of who we are that it would be massaged into our hearts such that it it, it will be natural for us to do the kinds of things he speaks about in verse 7. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. He wants God's word to be so much on our hearts, so ingrained in us, that it's actually possible for us to discuss it with other people and to turn it over in our minds, even when we don't have a copy of it open on the table. That we would actually discuss God's word at the dinner table and when we walk down the sidewalk and when we lie next to our spouses in bed and at all the moments In between, verse 7, Deuteronomy 6 is calling, perhaps at its most basic level, for us to internalize God's word. These words shall be on your heart. They need to be internalized. And that happens in a few different ways, doesn't it? We internalize God's words, of course, when we deliberately memorize certain portions of scripture. Those truths that we memorize begin to be internalized, don't they? And I'd urge you to internalize them in that way. Then also this internalization happens when we just, over a period of years, keep reading and reading and rereading the same books of the Bible. They eventually become locked in our memories, even if we haven't intentionally memorized them. For instance, how many of you could recap the events of the book of Jonah tonight? Not because you've memorized the book of Jonah, but because you've read it so many times, heard it taught so many times that it's finally stuck, right? Not only the sequence of events, but the lessons that come from them, many of them. And if you just read through the Bible enough, year after year after year, you will find that individual verses will stick in your memory too. Although you can't remember ever sitting down to actually memorize them. Some of you can quote Romans eight twenty eight not because you've sat down to memorize it, but because it just keeps coming up. Romans 5, 8, John 14, 6, etc. Just reading the scriptures again and again helps them to become a part of who you are, become written on your heart. And of course, this same thing happens not only when you read to yourself or for yourself, but when you put yourself constantly under the preaching and teaching of the word as well. In fact, sometimes... Hearing a passage preached might burn it into your memory more than simply reading it ever could. Maybe that will happen with these very words tonight. And then there's meditation also, right? When you not only read a passage or hear it taught, but then you go by yourself and you think deeply about what it says and what it means and how it applies to you, turning it over and over in your mind and making it a part of who you are. And talking to the Lord about what you've discovered. Meditation. And you can also internalize the word of God by doing these same sorts of things with other Christians in a group. Like we do in Sunday school. And I hope some of you do over Sunday lunch. Turning a passage over and over in your mind. Not by yourself. But with other people. Talking it out with other believers. Thinking about how it applies. That can make it stick in your heart as well. So. Memorization, meditation, just years of consistent reading, putting yourself under sound, preaching, small group discussion. In all these ways, we must internalize the word of God. We must write it on our hearts. And I just ask you tonight, maybe we're at this place in the scriptures tonight because God wants to remind some of us to pick up some lost habits and to begin them again. These words shall be on your heart But let me say this as well. The idea that these words shall be in your heart speaks to something even more, I think, than just internalization. Because you can memorize something, or you can read a book or see a movie so many times that you know it inside and out, but that doesn't mean that you love it, right? These words, to put it in another way, may be recorded on your memory without truly being written on your heart. And I think Deuteronomy 6 calls for both. You must not only know these words, but you must come to love these words. They must be not merely on your mind, but on your heart. How do we do that? How do we make ourselves love God's word? Well, there's a very important sense, of course, in which we must admit that we can't. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And again, it's part of his work of conversion as described in Jeremiah 31. He's the one who writes it on our hearts. He's the one who makes us love the truth. But in saying that the Holy Spirit can do this and we can't force it to happen, does that mean we just need to sit around and wait for the wind of the Holy Spirit to blow? Well, not exactly. We can't make ourselves love God's Word. We can't make the Word travel those 18 inches from our minds to our hearts but let me say this the word will never travel from our minds to our hearts if we don't put it in our minds to begin with right you want the holy spirit to give you a love for god's word then you've got to put it in your mind so that he can work it down into your heart And so we must do all the things that we mentioned above and then trust the Holy Spirit to grant us, not only to internalize what we read and hear, but actually to embrace it, to love it, to hold it dear in our hearts. But as I thought about it, I think there is something else that we can do to help ourselves by the Holy Spirit's power to begin to love God's word. How can you help yourself? In some ways, again, recognizing that the Holy Spirit will be the one to do it. But what can you do? What are the means you can use to to help yourself love God's word? Well, I think we will probably love it more if we not only read it and learn it, but live as though it were true. Live as though the promises were true. Bank your life upon the promises of God. Put yourself out on the kinds of limbs where if God does not keep his promises, you'll be in a tight spot. Why should you do that? Well, for one, it proves God's faithfulness. But secondly, I wonder if when we put ourselves out on God's promises and we have nothing beneath us but the promises of God, I wonder what effect that has when God does keep his promise, when God does prove truth. Don't you think it will make you delight in the promises of God all the more? You don't delight in a flavor of ice cream that you've never tasted before, do you? And I don't think it's too likely that you'll delight in the promises of God if you don't ever experience in real life just how good they really are. And if you don't put yourself in a place where you need the promises, then you won't experience their goodness. If you don't put yourself in a place to need God's promises, if you live, in other words, solely based on your own ingenuity, well, then you'll be hard-pressed to really love a promise that you've never really taken seriously or needed, or thought you needed, at least. God promised the Philippians, who were generous with their missionary, that he would supply all their needs, right? How precious is that promise to people who do not give very generously because they want to make sure that they themselves can supply all their needs? The same thing can be said, I think, to not only the promises but of God's commands. You won't begin to delight in God's commands if you don't put them into practice because you'll never have an opportunity to see how much better are God's ways than your own. But if you do what God says and you see how it pleases him and you see how he blesses obedience and you see how God's ways are the happiest ways, well, then the law of God doesn't sound any longer so restrictive but actually like the blessing that it was intended to be, right? It's the people who actually step out and do what God says who experience the goodness of it. For instance, I would wager that the people who murmur the most about the principle of tithing in the Bible— don't like that are probably mostly the people who've never actually practiced it very seriously or very long. They haven't yet seen how good it is. You say the same thing about taking the Lord's day for rest. If it feels restrictive upon our lifestyles, it may be that we've just not actually tried it out for long enough to see how glorious a full day of rest in the Lord can be. And we can say the same thing about any other command in Scripture. We, we come to love God's Word, both in its promises and its precepts, when we actually put them into practice and let God prove that His ways are the best ways. And I say all that under our first heading. Write these words on your heart. Internalize them, and then begin with the help of the Holy Spirit to love them. But then... There's a second place we must write these words. Write these words, verse 7, in the consciousness of your children. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Write these words in the consciousness of your children. Help internalize these words. In your children's minds as well. Or your grandchildren's. Or the children that you will someday have. You can't make your children love God's words... Although if you love them, there's a good chance your children will be wooed to do the same. But you can't make them love them. You can't ensure that your kids will believe. You can't guarantee that they will inscribe God's words on their hearts. But while they are young, what you can do by means of good training is to do all in your power to write God's words in their memory banks. And trust that he will drop them down into their hearts. And parents, grandparents, future parents... I plead with you, do not neglect the spiritual training of your children. These words shall be on your heart, verse 6, and verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Do not let it be that your children would know the heroes of the Marvel comics better than they know the heroes of the Old Testament. Do not permit that they know the lyrics of Katy Perry better than they know the words of the Psalms. Immerse your kids in the Bible while you can, because a time will come, if you don't, where they won't any longer permit you to even try, and it will be too late. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. Help your children memorize scripture. If you don't know where to start, Toby just mailed a note to each of the children in her Sunday school class with a verse to learn for the upcoming series of Sunday school lessons, so start there if your children are in that class. And then move to the 23rd Psalm or the Lord's Prayer. Go to classic gospel texts like John 3.16, John four fourteen six, Romans 5.8, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and so on. Get some scripture memory CDs that will put the words of the Bible to music and help the children even the more easily to internalize them. And then, beyond just memorization, read the Bible with your children every single day. Gather them for family worship, 10 to 15 minutes, each morning or each evening, and just read a passage of Scripture and talk about it briefly and ask them some questions and try to help them see how it applies to them and pray together about what you read and then sing a verse or two of a hymn or a song. And you'll build a lifelong habit that your children, Lord willing, won't quickly abandon even when they have families of their own. You can also take a copy of our children's catechism from the front uh, tract case, my first book of questions and answers, and help them learn that, too. It will make them, by the time they're 12 years old, better theologians than most church-going people in this country that are adults. And if you help them learn it, it will sharpen your sword as well. And then also, parents, in addition to these things, help your kids love the church. Help them love this place and these people where they come and are taught God's Word. Speak well of your church in your home. Bring the children to church with ultimate, dogged consistency. No lazy excuses for staying home. Get them in Sunday school. Get them in missions, memory, and music at 9 o'clock on Sundays. And in worship, let them see that you want to be here too. I heard Vody Bauckham speak about this some years ago, how one of the best things children will get out of being in the worship service is the impression that God is really important to mom and dad. So scripture memory, family devotions, catechism, church, does that sound like a lot? Well, not if you care about your children's souls, and not if these words are actually truly on your heart. These words shall be on your heart. And then also, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And as you do these things, as the scriptures begin to be systematically woven into the warp and woof, both of your own daily thinking and that of your children, then you also have all sorts of other unplanned opportunities to flesh them out together, to have real conversations about the Lord When you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now, this can be intentional, too, right? You can just start up a conversation about something in the Bible when you're driving to the grocery store, when you're sitting at the dinner table. But also, if you're really teaching your children diligently in the more preset ways, if you and your kids really have Scripture on the brain... And all sorts of daily circumstances, become what someone has called teachable moments. So when you see that really humanistic sign, slogan on a billboard, or when you find yourself sitting in the emergency room, or when your child's whining about the food portions or is afraid of the dark, or when dad's been impatient again, If you've taught your children diligently, then in all those circumstances, you'll have a scriptural basis from which to discuss each of those things. So that the Bible will not simply be the book that we read at church or in family devotions, but it will be a living letter that we can now apply to every situation in which we find ourselves and about which we can talk, verse 7, in all sorts of times and places. When we sit in our house, when we walk by the way, when we lie down, when we rise up, we always can talk about the Lord. So then take these words and write them on your own heart and write them into the consciousness of your children. And then thirdly, in order to help you do the previous two, write these words in conspicuous places. Write these words in conspicuous places, in places that you will see. I think that's what Moses is on about in verses 8 and 9 when he tells people to take God's words and tie them on their hands and insert them into their headbands and write them on their doorposts and gates. The idea was not, as the Pharisees later twisted it, to show how spiritual, spiritual you were by having Bible verses tied here and there all over your body. The point was that God wanted people to put portions of the Bible in various conspicuous places where they would regularly see them and be able to remember their God. So, for instance, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, just the two verses before our verses tonight, those two verses are among the most important passages in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Those are important enough verses that someone might want to have them engraved on a wristband or carved over the door of his house or even written on a little piece of parchment and stuck inside the brim of his hat or in his headband so that those verses can be pulled out regularly wherever you might be and read as a reminder. I think that was the point of these Bible verses that were to be written here and there and even tied sometimes to people's body. Adam Clark, once again, is helpful. The commentator Adam Clark is helpful here, commenting as follows on verse 8. When a person wishes to remember a thing of importance and is afraid to trust the common operations of memory, he ties a knot on some part of his clothes or a cord on his hand or finger that his memory may be wedded to recollection and his eye affect his heart. God, who knows how slow of heart we are to understand, graciously orders us to make use of every help. And I think that's the point of verses eight and nine: that we make use of every help in keeping God's words always before our conscience. Consciousness. So if you if you do tie a little string on your finger or put a little uh, clothespin out on the table or put a paperclip on your notes or whatever it may be to help you remember X, Y, or Z? How much more should we make use of every help to keep God's word in front of us? Now, for us, it may mean slightly different things than what the Israelites would do with tying them on their hands and, and putting on them on their foreheads, but maybe not all that much different. Maybe it means for you writing certain powerful verses on a post-it note and sticking them on the bathroom mirror where you'll see them every day. Or maybe you place a particularly important text of Scripture on the desktop background of your computer or on the back of a business card that you will always keep in your wallet. If you're struggling with doubts, it might be some great Bible promise. If you're struggling with sin, it might be some black and white commandment. If you want to be a better witness, maybe Matthew 28, 18 through 20 or Romans 10, 14 will be the verse that you'll want to placard. Maybe there's a psalm that's particularly met you in your darkness or a passage about the blood of Jesus that soothes your soul. Put it on an index card and stick it on your dashboard. Print it up on a nice piece of paper and frame it on your desk. Underline or highlight it in your Bible so that you can find it easily. Stencil it above the door of your home or pin it on a cork above your sink. Write it on the whiteboard that's on your refrigerator. Make a, a voice recording of it on your smartphone so that you can play it to yourself at the push of a button. But however you do it, in the words of Adam Clark, make use of every help. Not, he goes on to say, out of some superstitious idea that having Bible verses attached to your person or posted here and there will serve as a kind of charm to ward off all evil, but simply... Because if you can keep these words before your eyes, Clark says, you'll stand a much better chance of having them on your heart. Let me ask why, in conclusion, it is so important that we have these words written on our hearts and printed up around our homes and impressed upon the minds of our children. Well, if we go back and look at verses 1 through 3, we'll find that Moses gives us a couple of reasons A couple of reasons why these words should be kept on our hearts. Verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen. And be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Did you hear it? Why is Moses rehashing the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments of the Lord in verse 1? Well, first of all, he says in verse 1, that you might do them. And in verse 2, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life. Why should you write these words on your heart? Why should you write them in the minds of your children? Why should you write them and put them in various places where you'll see them all the time? The first reason is obedience. These words shall be on your heart that you might obey the Lord. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that's reason enough, isn't it? We ought to immerse ourselves and our families in God's word simply so that we will do what he asks us to do, that we might be obedient. But then Moses also says that this obedience leads to blessing. Listen to verses 1 through 3 again and hear the progression he makes. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now those promises about long days and land and multiplication were given specifically to national Israel as they prepared to enter a physical land of promise. And they may not apply exactly in the same way to us today, but I think you'll agree the principle still applies. If you obey, God rewards obedience. Obedience to the Lord and to his word always turns out better for us than trying to do things our own way. And that's a second reason to engrave these words on your heart and to teach them to your kids and to post them around your house because they'll help you obey and because that obedience will prove to bring with it a blessing. You should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you. And then there's one more reason that I think is the most important reason of all to remember to make these words written on your heart, written on your bathroom mirror, written on your refrigerator, written in your children's memories. One more reason, most important of all, it's not mentioned here by Moses, but if you'll turn over to Luke 24, you'll see it plain. Gospel according to Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24, Jesus has just risen from the dead, and he's alive forevermore. But not all of his followers believe it yet. And two of them are walking along with long faces down the road to Emmaus, talking about all the events of recent days, and they're a bit dejected. They think it's all over. We thought this Jesus was going to be the Savior, but now he's been gone for three days. And Jesus comes alongside them and prevents them somehow from recognizing him and begins asking them what it is that they're discussing. And they tell him the sad, sad story of their dead Jesus. And then listen what happens next, beginning in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Wouldn't you have loved to have been on that Emmaus walk? And heard how Jesus himself, who had these words on his heart like no one else has ever had them on their hearts. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard how he took these words, the very words of Moses, the very words that he's recapping in this book of Deuteronomy, and the words of the rest of the Old Testament too, and showed how they all point to him. No wonder these disciples' hearts burned within them. And that's what happens when these words begin to be in our hearts. They do what they were always intended to do. That's what happens when we begin to teach them to our children and put them up where we can see them. We begin to see Jesus all throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and our hearts burn within us. And I say this is the best reason of all to be sure that these words are on your heart and that they're in the minds of your children and your grandchildren and that they're on your smartphone and your corkboard and your desk. Because these words, even these words from the books of Moses, even these words in the Old Testament carry us without fail to Jesus. They speak to us of his sinless life. They tell us of his sacrificial death. They proclaim his resurrection. They herald his coming. They present him in his offices of prophet and priest and king. They show him forth in his full deity and his utter humanity. And they tell us that whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And so I say to you, if you wish to see Jesus, if he is the one your soul loves, if he is the delight of your eyes, if he is the one more than any other to whom you want to introduce your children, then Deuteronomy chapter 6, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates."